Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to shout out my newest patrons, Pun, Jeff, and Jeff. Thanks so much for your support. You helped make this episode happen. If you'd like to support the show, want a shout-out on my next episode, or want an inside scoop on my upcoming guests, consider joining. You can find the link in my episode notes, my link tree, or by heading to patreon.com slash hn2dm. One more quick announcement I'm really excited about. I have a few friends in the podcasting world, like Bombarded, who donate a percentage of their ad and patron money to good local causes, so I've decided to follow suit. As of January 2022, 10% of the money I bring in from ads and supporters like you will be donated to Encircle, a nonprofit organization with the mission to bring the family and community together to enable LGBTQ youth to thrive. Encircle has built a couple homes locally and is planning on building others in neighboring cities and states for LGBTQ youth to have a place to hang out and enjoy a safe space. They have daily programs, friendship circles, offer therapy on-site, and even have a D&D club. It's on hiatus because of COVID, but I'm really excited to go join in on the fun once they're able to start playing again. Overall, I think it's an amazing cause, and I'm really excited to help support it. Check out the episode notes or go to encircletogether.org for more information. Now, on to our guest intro. Todd Stashwick is an incredibly talented actor and writer with over 120 credits on IMDb and counting. He's played hardened villains, brooding anti-heroes, lovable protagonists, and most importantly, D&D. Todd has some really cool tips on making your improv and roleplay more intentional, and has shared the table with some incredibly talented people like Liam O'Brien, Satine Phoenix, Jasmine Bular, Patrick Warburton, and many more he mentions in this episode. Enjoy! A little bit about myself. I'm a Chicago boy, born and raised in Illinois, um, suburbs outside of Chicago. Moved back to the city. I mean, I, I like if you watch Stranger Things, that was aside from the you know the portals to the meat monsters, that was my upbringing. I was that kid. I was the Spielberg kid on the bike with his friends playing D and D, playing Star Wars action figures. I was literally literally that kid i was the target audience i was born in 68 so in 1980 i was 12. so i'm that kid and uh, i did a lot of cartooning and stuff in high school i really enjoyed acting and so that's what i pursued as a career went to college for it moved to new york with it uh, i did uh, second city in chicago did a lot of theater in new york and then slowly clawed my way into television and film and that's where I sit you know and now I I write and I write video games and screenplays and pilots and comic books and all of that stuff as far as TTRPG I was again I was that kid so I was back in the day I think I think I first laid my eyes on on my first d20 probably around 78 and then I started playing D&D around 79. So like my first person, my cousin Tori introduced me. It was clear as a bell. Like I just remember sitting in his, his garden level apartment for a second. We were upstairs visiting my uncle and went downstairs and he like takes out a character sheet and he takes out some dice and 
he was it was just one of those like what is that like i didn't grok it at the time how like these plastic math rocks and a piece of paper equaled the rankin and bass hobbit like somehow there was a connection to the two but it didn't quite make sense to my then 10 year old eyes and then a year later uh, it was a brush fire uh, amongst us nerd boys and girls so i started playing with the neighbors and my cousin and friends from school and church and started the D club in my junior high school my cousin collected all of the signatures and got a student advisor and we would do movie nights where we would get the AV department to like wheel in a big quarter inch VCR uh, and we would watch like Hawk the Slayer. But I grew up on like all that, all the Hobbit, the Bakshi Hobbit and all Beastmaster. Like that was, that was my world. And then around like, so three years in uh, early eighties is when the satanic panic hit. And I was that impressionable kid that went to some camp and all the camp counselors told us that it was the gateway to satan and my parents didn't feel that way they were super supportive they're like my dad made me my dungeon master's box and i had all my books and 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 everything but i gave it all away i came back from that camp and i just i made a hard break from it and didn't think about it again until 15 years ago 10 15 years ago when i was at an audition told this story before but an actor named abraham ben ruby he just sort of offhandedly said, ah, oh, we were up late playing D&D. And now, you know, years later, I don't have the superstitions that I had as a kid. And I was like, wait, you were doing what? And he's like, yeah, we were playing D&D. And he was playing with Lillard and a bunch of people. Well, I wasn't going to insinuate myself into his game, but I was suddenly like, wait, grown-up people play Dungeons and Dragons? And it was just, I didn't do it in college. I was doing theater and I was doing a bunch of other stuff. Uh, I was playing video games and things like that, but I just wasn't playing D&D. But to know that it was out there again amongst grown-ups and it was like kind of a quiet secret. People were playing poker, but they weren't playing D&D. And so I went on eBay and before they were really collector's items again, I went back and bought all my original books. My, I actually have one right here. Uh, I bought back like my theme folio and I bought back the player's handbook and all those original ones, the, the AD&D books from the 80s 70s and 80s and i just started just collecting them again just to look at the drawings and to just get that old feeling back and then sort of hit a critical mass and then when 5e hit i was like that's it i want to play dungeons and dragons i put it on facebook i said i want to play and my buddy yuri lowenthal he's a really successful voiceover uh, artist and actor he uh shows up at my house an hour later after seeing my post with the starter kit and he said me too and I want to say this is like late 2015. And he's like, happy birthday. Yeah, so it was around October 2015. He's like, happy birthday. And he has me the starter kit. He's like, let's play D&D. And I'm like, I love it because he hadn't been back into it yet either. And right as that happened, I booked 12 Monkeys and left LA for three years. But in the middle of all that, late 2016, so this is a long story, but I'll, it'll, it'll end soon. Uh, long story, but uh, for, 20, for 12 Monkeys... The, the sort of uh, request came down from one of the producers that they wanted me in like prison yard shape for season three. I'm like, I'm, I'm 48. What does that mean? So I hired a trainer and I hired a nutritionist and I just went at it full bore. But my trainer 
uh, was David Nett. Now, David Nett is one of the founding people who really started carving out streaming D&D back when nobody was doing it. And he was oddly, when I was training with him for 12 Monkeys, he was also training Matt and Marisha. So it, it was like, so, so I was dipping my toe back into it. And I had this amazing Sherpa who said, look, when 12 Monkeys ends and, you know, it'd be done by the end of 2017, I will start a table for you and Yuri and we'll get a bunch of people uh, and it will start ongoing. And I've been, and this month we'll start the fifth year. We've had the same table. So that's my long journey into D&D with that old school AD&D and then my journey back. And I haven't left the table since uh, late 2017 when I started, you know, reading the new player's handbook and started character building. I think we had a session zero and then we actually started the campaign in 20, early, early 2018. So this is, it's been four full years. We're now heading into our fifth with the same campaign. And then Dungeon Mastering. My 11-year-old daughter, a 10-year-old daughter at the time, was like, what is that, Dad? What are you doing? I'm like, it's Dungeons & Dragons. She's like, I want to play. So I cracked open the starter kit and grabbed a bunch of her friends and was sort of compelled into learning how to DM again for a bunch of uh, 10-year-olds. And that's how, I started, that's how I started DMing again. That's so awesome. Yeah, I wonder how many people out there like you were scared out of it and have refound the hobby, you know? There must be quite a few, but yeah, that's an interesting thought. Well, you know, Anthony Rapp, he and I talked about it because we have similar, kind of similar journeys. I don't think it was Satan that pushed him out of it. He was a Chicago kid who started playing in the 80s and then came back to it in his late 40s, early 50s. So uh, you mentioned running games for your daughter and her friends. Do you have a memory of the first game you ran way back um, when you were a kid? Yeah. Well, we ran the modules, as we called them then. Back in the day, we would, you know, we would eagerly wait the the little pamphlet because you would use the uh, cover as your DM screen because it had all the maps already on the inside of it. So I think one of the first ones we dove into was like In Search of the Unknown and Keep on the Borderlands. Those were the first ones, and they came with the box, I think. Um, and then we were also playing Gamma World and Boot Hill and Top Secret. And then I remember homebrewing one that was all based on Clash of the Titans. And it was like, and I thought it was super clever because it was the land of Asir, which was Greece spelled backward. I thought it was super <laughs> clever. But it was like, it was a two and there was like Medusas and Pegasus and, and because everybody was watching Clash of the Titans. So I wanted to run like a Greek mythology one. So I remember drawing the maps for that. I wish I still had them. I wish I still had all my old character sheets. My buddy David still has all his... He's been running kind of contiguously since the 80s, uh -huh. running games. So he never gave it up, really. Yeah, it would be cool to kind of run, run down memory lane with all those. Like you said, looking at all the old pictures of the books you used to have, I'm sure it'd have a similar effect. Oh, makes me happy. So uh, running games, I, I'm sure this these might kind of be more recent examples, but what do you feel like are some of the mistakes that you've had to learn from as a dungeon master? Over prep is a big one, and every every DM will tell you because it's like your players are going to break it. And I just remember being terrified running Fandelver. I'm like, I have to read and memorize this entire book, and I have to make laminated pictures of all of my monsters, and I have to... I have to verbatim, and, and so there was a lot of over-prep. And then, because I mostly, outside of Fandelver, I mostly was running 
one shots. So I was doing one shots once a month for off and on for the last four years. And the first ones were the Sly Flourish Fantastic Adventures. David's like, here, these are great. These are going to give you some rails so that you can see how a, a one shot is structured. And then, and then I would homebrew within them until eventually the written adventures would fall away. And I was just homebrewing my own. But when it came to homebrewing, I think I was doing too many encounters. And then suddenly this thing was like a eight hour game. And you're like, oh, wait, oh. So I think I was not realizing how much analysis paralysis goes on when you put them in front of a door and then they end up talking about, should we pick the lock? Should we listen? How would it, should we go through that door? Maybe we should go up the, and you're like, we open the door. The fight's on the other side of the door. So not understanding the mind, uh, how players will perseverate if you just say like, uh, and the sound of the wind, and there's a creek in the air. Where's the creek? Is the creek down the hallway? Let's go investigate the creek. And you're like, oh no, I shouldn't have said creek. Yeah. <laughs> as, as you're improvising, you suddenly realize that you're throwing the spotlight on things that you never intended to then cause your players to derail all of your prep. So, A, don't prep as much. <laughs> and B, uh, David's like, no, you know what? One encounter an hour of gameplay. If you're probably going to do a five-hour game, maybe combat encounters and then other problems, other problem-solving stuff, including when you order pizza and when everybody takes bio breaks and when you're mixing drinks and, and all of that. So... That those were some early kind of rookie mistakes was just over prepping. That's why again I sound like I'm a commercial, but Sly Flourish has those great uh, lazy dungeon master guides. They are essential reading for DMs. Yeah, I have my copy just over here too. Yeah, I love that book. So good. As far as memories of cool stuff that's happened in your games, what are some of the the ones that stick out that all of you, you know, all the players or, or the DMs still talk about to this day? One of my favorite things that, that, you know, it's like you have this moment that it occurs to you. So this was as a player. You know, my character is a sorcerer. And so we had just come out of the Tomb of Elemental Evil and we got captured and we were stripped of all our weapons. And I woke up, you know, chained and bloody and my eye had gotten put out and, and I was stripped. I was like naked. And I'm a sorcerer. And then I'm like, what do I do? And then I go, all right, DM. What are the odds after crawling around the temple element, uh, element and we're being attacked and we're trying to escape, right? We finally get out of our, our shackles. I go, what are the odds that after crawling around in the catacombs of the temple elemental that I might have some sulfur and bat guano beneath my fingernails? And he goes, yeah, you would. So it was one of those moments where like just thinking narratively how without any of my components, am I going to be able to cast and get us out of this? So it was just this like scrambling up the stairs naked. Like it was like out of that uh, Viggo Mortensen film where they're fighting naked in the sauna, Eastern Promises. Anyway, he, there's an amazing scene. He's like in a sauna and it's a fight scene, but just like just filthy and bloody and naked. And then just trying to race up the spiral staircase while I'm just casting fireball based on a little bit of gunk that was left in my fingernails from the previous adventure so that was that was fun kind of mathing out the reality of the narrative and how i can use it years or two ago 
we had uh, received treasure and one of the items that my buddy Chris Monfett, he was a writer for 12 Monkeys, uh, he's at our table. One of the items that he got was uh, a, a ring of number numbing or number confusion. And it's basically you can cause somebody not to be able to do math. And he's like, I don't know why I got this, but I got it. And he kept it for years. So we were in this classic, you know, Tolkien way, trapped with a red dragon in his lair with his hoard of money. And Chris Chris decided to do a gentleman's wager with the dragon to let us go for free. He scooped up some coins and put them in his pocket. He's a rogue, so he scooped up some coins. And he says, okay, oh, great and powerful dragon. Surely you are the master of your treasure. And so David was role-playing it with, like, like, don't insult me. Of course I know every coin that's in here. And then he said, all right. And he bet him if he could tell him, based on his knowledge of the room of coins, how many coins he had in his pocket. Because dragons are smart and they know their treasure. How many coins do I have in my pocket? If you can guess that, you can eat us all. And if you can't guess it, you let us go and you owe us a favor. So the dragon just smugly takes the bet and Chris takes out the ring of of number confusion. And it was like one of these moments where we were actually in my yard because it was still during the pandemic, but we were social distance playing. And everybody else was on their feet watching them RP the scene and David rolled a wisdom check at disadvantage because of the number confusion and he failed the check. And so he outwitted a red dragon and we all just went on our merry way with, uh, we left a messaging stone with the dragon saying, we're going to call. <laughs> so those are two player examples. And then one really fun moment of just having the freedom to explore and play with a group of people that you love. I was doing a charity game with some wonderful, wonderful players, David Nett and Satine Phoenix and uh, Brandon Cleely. And it was like a cat-themed game. We were all playing cats because it was for a cat rescue. There was a moment where the pirate ship and a ship was about to you know, board and attack, and David was playing El Meowster, a mage, like a dark mage. It was just silliness. But he, but he, he, he wanted to cast Shatter on the mast of the other boat to stop its forward motion. So he casts shatter and I rolled, I rolled a con save against the wood just to see, you know, what would it do? And of course I failed it. And so I stopped and I just began the story. Once upon a time in a forest, a tree dreamed of the ocean. And it was basically the giving tree. It was like, and he would watch the gulls overhead as he would feel the sea breeze wet sway his top. And he was happy, but he just wanted to see the sea. And then it was like, and then some loggers came and took it and they shaped it and they hewn it. And he was built onto a mighty sea vessel and he was happy. And he went out to sea and he saw many adventures and over the sky. Now the gulls came to him and perched upon him as he set out to sea as they rest in the middle of blah, blah, blah. And then he exploded. (laughs) 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 Just... It was just this, just this wonderful, like, just to take the time to, like, tell the backstory of the mast of the ship was one of my favorite things that, that like, 
play with the people that you play with and them affording you the indulgence and, and, and just allowing yourself to go to these wonderful, silly places and knowing where it's going. And you're watching the faces of all the players going, oh, no, here we go. <laughs> we know what he's doing that oh man that's that is really funny i'll have to go find the the vod of that and, and watch it who do you feel like are the greatest influences on you running games who do you draw from oh god i'm a shameless thief yeah well first and foremost david nett is responsible for so much of my understanding of uh he's my you know it's like one of those things where i imagine he gets sick of it and just goes just open the dungeon master's guide Todd. you don't have to call me and then like satine of course i've had the good fortune of sitting at her tables abria iyengar i love her stuff i've watched uh mercer of course and uh liam o'brien i love how abria when she's doing initiatives she will tell who's on deck like you're up you're on deck and it just keeps it moving in a beautiful way like i just you know i stand on the shoulders of these giants and i constantly am impressed and amazed and i, I will listen to jasmine bular who's a friend of mine and I'm, I, I'm also very fortunate that i know these people too so i can text them and ask them questions about uh dungeons and dragons mike neistel uh i've stolen from him there's just so many great players out there jen kretschmer Great DMs, great DMs out there. And and I've had the good fortune of B. Dave. Jesus, like I've had a good fortune of being able to sit at the tables of not all of them. I haven't played with Mercer. I haven't sat at Avria's table. I haven't been DM'd by Liam, but I've rolled dice with him. But like Satine and B. Dave and Jasmine and David, like these guys are the ones that I am constantly cribbing from and stealing from and learning from. And I just listened to a great podcast conversation with uh, Brennan, who I haven't, you know, shame on me, I haven't watched Dimension 20 yet, but just listening to his passion and him talk about D&D, and then he was talking about it with Satine, and there was just like gem after gem after gem, and now I'm in the middle of the one with Jasmine, and just gems, just gems. Yeah. Yeah, Brennan's games are zany and off the wall and incredible, so I think I think you really like them, especially if, you know, if you're pulling off tree stories yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I I will do Zany more for charity streams because those are for an audience. Like the game itself kind of comes secondary to the entertainment. But with my home games, we like humor, but we don't necessarily embrace wacky. We like like table talk humor or circumstantial character humor. We embrace, but the games tend to be a lot more grounded than when I'm doing like a charity stream. Like I did a, I did a charity stream that that unbeknownst to the players, it ended up and it was they didn't realize, but they were in a Scooby Doo adventure. Like at the end, they like literally ripped the mask off the guy, and the guy's name was like Oldman Clemens. His like first name was Oldman, so they went Oldman Clemens. And then there was a dog, but it snuck up on them, uh, and they didn't realize they were in the middle of a Scooby-Doo adventure. And I remember B. Dave just, like, shaking his head. I'm like, thank you. That's the exact response that I wanted when the reveal was it was a Scooby-Doo adventure. <laughs> yeah, I think Dimension 20, they, they recognize that it's entertainment, and that's that's kind of the vibe they're going for, exactly. This episode of How Not to DM is brought to you by... 
Gemmed Firefly. Need a fresh new look for the new year? Head on over to GemmedFirefly.com for the newest tees, mugs, and home goods styled with D&D gamer humor and aesthetics. As always, Gemmed Firefly makes every shirt to order, bringing you all of the softest and most comfortable shirts that thousands have come to love. And now, listeners of the show get a discount when you use the code DRAGON at checkout. Find your new favorite shirt at GemmedFirefly.com. Next, check out the latest from Minstrel's Tale. Hail fellow adventurers, and greetings from the frozen lands of Icewind Dale. Join the DM and players of Minstrel's Tale as they grapple with not only the frigid wastes of this inhospitable land, but the chilly hearts of the people who inhabit it. Tune in every Saturday at 6pm Pacific Time at twitch.tv slash minstrelstale. And an awesome publication from Apple White Games. Explore a city of criminals, find the lost scholar, and discover the forgotten world hidden at the center of Aragarth. Journey to the Center of Aragarth is a D&D 5e campaign for high-level parties looking to test their abilities live on Kickstarter February until the 28th. So, level up your characters, and don't miss your chance to join the adventure. And finally, a Kickstarter from Icarus Games. Make learning 5th edition easier than ever with the class cheat sheets from Icarus Games now on Kickstarter. Keep track of all of your class abilities with simple language, easy to reference icons, and page references for the full rules. And never forget your options in combat thanks to a handy quick reference guide for actions in combat. Kickstarter is live until March 2nd. Sign up at icarus-games.co.uk slash kickstarter. As always, links to all of this great content from all of these creators is available in my episode notes. And now, let's return to the show, starting up with a brand new minigame for Season 2. What about your past experiences or your personality really made you gravitate towards role-playing games? Well, as a kid, it was just, it was a cool thing that we could gather around a table, the fellowship of it. and. We were making up stories anyway. Like we would go on hikes and like pretend we were on some sort of dungeon crawl. And then to have the fickle uh, fate of the dice actually shape the outcome of your choices was fun. I mean, and, and, and there were successes and losses. And like I said, I was a Hobbit kid and I was a, I was a Lord of the Rings kid and, and a Star Wars kid. And so just just being able to go, wow, I could actually submerge myself in these realms with my friends it was just it was so uncool it was cool you know what i mean it was like the nerd it was the nerdiest thing you could do so nerdy and i was already playing with action figures and doing star wars like creating scenarios so this was just an evolution of all of that and a very or and it wasn't like it wasn't like a tabletop like uh, we're opening a monopoly board or clue or it was it was freer than that, and it encouraged exploration. And it, and I mean, so much of it was much more dungeon crawly. In fact, I ran a campaign or an adventure for Dungeon Run that I had done as a home one shot, and it was a very meta tribute to the classic kind of games that we played as kids, because so much of the games that we played as kids were just so arbitrary. Where it was like going down a hallway, you you enter a room, and there's a goblin sitting on a chest. Nowadays, we would go, why? Like, who does that goblin work for? Who is he? What's the backstory of the goblin? Back in the day, it was just like, in the middle of the hall, there's a gelat, it's cute, fight it. Like, why? There's so, there, it's so rando 
that I did uh, I did an adventure. And you can find this video on demand where essentially is to you know spoiler it it literally was about a little boy creating uh an adventure for people like adults were sort of forced to go through an adventure uh they didn't realize it was all a fabrication of the kid yeah this is the dungeon run the show with uh with jeff canada yeah 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 so jeff jeff was out that week and i was asked to guest dm for it and i had run the game for one of the producers as a home game and he's like hey come and run that on dungeon run but that was, it was just so like rando and silly. It was just like traps and monsters and that's it. And there's no like, yeah, there was sort of a loose, like get the gem of Anaka. It's at the very back of the castle. Okay. Like there was just no, like no emotion. No one's pie shopping. Like no, like there's no nothing. It was just March dungeon crawl, March through. And that has its charm. Like that has its simple appeal. Mm -hmm. yeah i think every once in a while that's just really what people want to do is just go solve a bunch of puzzles and and hack and slash and hack and slash yep yeah exactly and now it's time for quickfire Welcome to Quickfire Chaos. This week, Todd and I are going to use some random D100 tables to create an NPC fetch quest and then roleplay a situation to show off Todd's acting and improv skills. Let's get rolling. The first one will be what kind of voice you've got. Okay. You're so lucky that I happen to have my Nerd Circus Dice Tower at the ready. That's a three. You have a naturally low voice, and every paragraph is a sentence. Your English teacher hated you. Every paragraph. So it's, it's, it's sort of like Liam Neeson. He speaks very clipped. Next is your job. Uh, 67. You are a shepherd. Yes, I'm a shepherd. There's two more. One is a trait that you've got. 68. That is nervous, easily agitated. Very uptight. Okay. And then lastly, the quest that you're going to send me on. 100. My last guest yesterday, Guy Sklanders from How to Be a Great GM. I don't know if you know him at all, but he rolled 100 also, which is... What are the odds? Yeah, what are the odds? Okay. We're looking for the heart of a nymph. Exquisite. Uh, good sir, I hear that you are in need of some assistance. Welcome to the hills of Indinga. Yes, I am Rothic. I am a shepherd, and as you can see, all of my sheep have turned to stone. Now, I have done the research, and I have found that there is a curse. I have two of the components, but one is missing. I need you to venture deep into the woods of Blizzard and find me, the heart of a nymph. It is harvest soon. I must shear these sheep, and I cannot shear stone. And I will go broke. My family will 
Starve, you are the champion that is required. So please head into the forest of blizzard and find me the heart of a nymph. You need not cut it out. What I need for you to do is win her heart. Oh, that's a twist I did not foresee, but ah. it shall be done. I'm not a barbarian. I am but a shepherd. I do not ask that you cut the heart of a nymph, but have her return with her undying expression of affection for you. Are you a bard, sir? Uh, I, I am not, but I know a few songs. You might want to bring me. That is a fantastic suggestion. <laughs> All right. I love it. That was, a, that was a good twist you gave there, too. <laughs> okay. This next question comes from some of my patrons. Matthew, thanks for the question. It is, you started your acting career in improvisation, uh, kind of does some yep. work with Second City. So what are the similarities do you feel between acting and improv for television and movies versus improv in TTRPGs? So what are the similarities? And then also, what do you feel like are the differences between the two? Well, improvisation itself is a tool. It can be used to be a form of theater in and of itself. When I was at Second City, we would use it for games. We would do improvised games, and then we would use it to help devise scenes that we would then go on to script and shape. Then when I was in New York, I had done a show called Burn Manhattan, where the improv was the means unto itself. Like the whole, we would improvise for an hour plus uh, without suggestions, and the show just would go. It was a long-form improvisation. Uh, then I would kind of hone it into a more narrative-driven one when I moved to L.A. and started a show called The Doubtful Guests, where there was a premise. Like, we were four people killed in a brothel fire in 1888 London, and our souls were damned to do an improvised show. So there were parameters and a conceit that we were these awful people. It was, we were doing a show within a show, but no reference could exceed 1888 London, and the music was like accordion and mandolin and stand-up bass. You can find, actually, YouTubes of it called The Doubtful Guests, plural and put the word improv at the end of that uh and you'll find some scenes from that show we would improvise songs and scenarios and so that's improv itself as an art form as as i have seen and taught it uh I, i've taught it a lot i had an improv school in the valley here now how does that apply to television and film well a buddy of mine jay lacopo once said acting is all improvisation but you happen to be saying what the writer wrote in that you are having organic responses to that which you are hearing and if you're hearing the other characters say something to you you have an organic thought based on that based on your character's backstory and history and the circumstances you will have an organic thought now you'll have that thought and then you say what the writer wrote with that thought underneath it mm. an undertone yeah like a, a guy who's afraid to be fired sees his boss wearing a, uh, a shirt and he's like, ah, great shirt, boss. Or a guy who is about to quit sees the same shirt and he's like, yeah, great shirt, boss. Like, so there's like night and day with what's happening in the context of that moment based on the organic improvised thoughts that are in the circumstances. So that's how I approach improvisation I mean, a lot of people confuse improv with, I'm making up what I'm saying. That's not always the case. Improvisation is, is sometimes not what you're not saying at all. Are there moments where I've ad-libbed new 
pieces of dialogue and then pitch them to the writers and the directors of the thing. And like, yeah, try that one instead. Uh, that happens. That happens. Or going, I want to try something, a bit of business or a bit of something where I'm organically creating in the moment. Absolutely. Now, how does that apply to TTRPG? Same rules apply. So given scenarios that I'm listening to, my, my players are surprising me with bits of information, just like we just did with rolling dice. You give me new information that then uh, I filter that through my uh, experiences and the images in my head that are uh, illuminated based on the input that I'm getting. So it's always fundamentally about listening, whether you're doing TTRPG or regular acting or straight up improv. It's all about listening because you need to mine the data for your next bit of content based on what's happening in the room. Now, do you do prep? Do I have parameters and scenarios that I have pre-scripted in terms of NPCs and, and circumstances? Of course I do. But the improvisation comes in when they zig, I have to zag. So it's all the same tool. It's listening, heightening, exploring, yes-anding. Now, in D&D, the dice are also there to help shape the narrative, you know, said this the other day on another podcast, but you know the most controversial tweet I ever got or I ever tweeted, which is ridiculous, which is in, what I love about D&D is bad roles equal great story. And I just said, well, that's not Dungeons and Dragons. But maybe in other RPGs, it's baked into the rules. And I'm like, no, it's actually baked into the rules of D&D. And I actually took a screenshot of the Dungeon Master's Guide and showed them where it was. It literally says, bad roles equal good story. I'm paraphrasing. But... <laughs> Downturns, downturns, downturns are essential to good storytelling because there's no upturns, right? And downturns are given to us by the dice. Our best intentions are, are put forth, and then the dice go, yeah, good, good nice, nice try. <laughs> so what you're saying about improv, you're being nimble. You have to stay super nimble as a, as a DM and go, all right. It's the same thing. It's listening, trusting the inspiration that you're given based on the input that you're given from your partners trust it put it out there yeah great thank you and thanks matthew for that question what tips and tricks do you have with your your acting and your improv background to help dungeon masters who want to improve their table presence and by table presence i mean you know maybe they feel like they're not being as immersive as they could be or you know they they, they really want to put more work into their characters more um, more feel into their story. What do you? What's some advice you have for people who want to improve that? Without the story and the theater, it's literally just my numbers versus your numbers, right? That's it. I have a fifteen in my head. You rolled a thirteen. You didn't get a higher number than me. That's the whole game fundamentally at its very base is that. So I don't want to play that game where we just sit there and say my numbers were higher, your numbers were lower. Your numbers are higher. Who cares? So knowing that everything else is the game, everything else is Dungeons and Dragons. So you go, well, then it is about painting pictures, painting pictures. So take your time, set the scenes, describe, enjoy. Even if you're reading it out of a book, enjoy reading it, paint the picture, Enjoy the silences. Let things resonate and sit so that they have impact. And then when you take your time, it's a thing we call it improvisation in Commedia dell'arte called don't burn your steps. 
do this, then this, then this, then this. Don't try to rush to this. D&D isn't meant to be finished. We're not playing it to finish it. We're playing it to be in it. So live in that. Don't burn your steps. Do one thing at a time. So, for example, I'll use the tree example. I know where it's going with the mast exploding. When I saw the die roll, I pause. You know, I'm behind the dungeon master screen. They don't see what rolls I get. So I take the time to look at the roll. And I go, I could go, the mast exploded. But then that's just basically going, your numbers were higher than mine. But to look at the roll, I go, well, I know the outcome. He got the desired result. How can I now dance in the sunbeam of this? How can we paint a picture? And then it was the rewinding and going, all right, all right, I'm going to take the time to tell the backstory of the tree that became the mass that that exploded. But we're not in any hurry. We're not rushing. It all it all depends on gameplay and the, and the group that you have. Like some some groups just want to get like when can we start stabbing things? And so you got to know your table. But I think people show up at my table for the story and for the fun and for the characters and for for the tale that we're weaving and the surprises. And the dice are there to help guide and shape that. So I would say, take your time and enjoy the storytelling. Enjoy the performance of of a character. And you don't have to do voices. And you don't have to do, you can say, and they respond. You can be third person. She looks at you with a glower and and she says, there's no way you are all going to be allowed to stay in the inn. Uh, You're covered in blood. (laughs) Like, you can say that as opposed to, get those filthy things, you'll feel, you know. No, well, shut for yourself, put mine. Like, there's so many different types of play style that don't feel beholden to do someone else's. But I would say, slow it down. You're the dungeon master. You are the painter of the picture. Yeah. All right. Have you introduced anybody from your work in film and TV to D&D, to tabletop role-playing games? And who from those industries is most fun to play with for you? I got to do a game for a bunch of 12 Monkeys people, whether they were writers and actors. And it was, uh, and Aaron Stanford was at that table and Amanda Shule was at the table. And Amanda had never played D&D and it was adorable. And Amanda's like such a, like a note taker. And she's like, boom, she will put all the tabs in the books. And she's like really buttoned down in her approach to things. And so she was going to like, she was going to do it right. And it was really fun because she just kept, every time she would cast a spell, she would she would say bippity-boppity-boo. <laughs> and it made me the happiest boy. She's like, and then we bippity-boppity-boo. And then Aaron Stanford really took to the game. And I've played with him like three times now. And you could, he's a fantasy nerd. So he really like leaned in hard to the game and loves it. And he's so fun. And one of my favorite moments, because he, he has a sort of wonderful kind of he's got a leadership quality to him and he's and and he wants to kind of pull opinions and there was one moment where they come into town and all the town folks were turned to stone and then he goes uh we have a medusa situation here and he was not wrong but that's not what turned them to stone but there was a medusa at one point um it was thematic um so so he was, he's just really, I've had him back several times. I would have Amanda back, but she's now got a baby, uh, a little one at home. And so her time has been uh, taken up with, with motherhood in between acting on every 
you know, she's done so many movies and things, TV movies and things since 12 Monkeys. And then she was on Suits right after. Like, so she never stops working either. And then I also got to bring Patrick Warburton to the table. Oh, that was a whole lot of fun. Yeah. Had he ever played? He, he his boys play. And so, you know, he introduced me to his boys who are uh, his son, Talon, is a DM and he's a terrific DM. And I've rolled dice with him. And then one day Talon and, uh, and these other uh, players came over with Patrick to, to my nerd lair. And I had done a pilot with Patrick years ago and so i had always offered to run a game for him and then when his boys were getting into it he called me. he's like my boys are getting into these dungeons and dragons so i need you all to meet and so so he came over and he played a barbarian named Kronk, and it was uh we had a blast and he landed the killing blow to the big bad and it was just a it was a, it was really fun and he was just really curious because his boys were in it and he wanted to celebrate something his boys were doing uh, I say boys, they're men. They're in their 20s. Uh, but uh, that was really fun. Oh, yeah, man. That was really fun. That's a spot on Patrick Warburton, too. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's fun to do. <laughs> fun. Oh, man. That would have been a very fun game. You've portrayed quite a few kind of intimidating villain and anti hero types of late. In your opinion, what makes a really memorable villain? And what do you like to draw from when you're playing them? on screen and at your table villains as i have seen them obviously they don't think they're wrong there's always a moral dilemma with villains uh where the, you know the thing that separates them from a hero is they are unable to change so given that moment which is why darth vader is is historically actually a hero because of that that big change uh and the emperor not so much so for me, I, I like to, especially in modern day, unless I'm playing, you know, a Disney villain, which I've done, they tend to, the ones that I am gravitated towards, they tend to have a, a bit of uh, heartbreak in them. And uh, you need to, at some sliver of a way, think they might be a little right. Think they might be a little right and be sympathized with them. Plus. I always, I mean, having come from comedy, I always end up being left of center villains, wanting to weave in my own personal you know, rhythms and senses of humor, sense of humor into the performance so that you go, oh, I kind of like this guy. Oh, he's kind of fun. And when he shows up on screen, there's a little bit of like, oh, he, he's fun. You know, same with like Heath Ledger's Joker. Like you, like you watch that and you go, well, "There's a he's not wrong sometimes," and he's certainly having a good time being. So between being Batman or the Joker, you go, well, "That guy's having a lot more fun." <laughs> like in life, he's having a lot more fun, and that's you know, I think if you can find their sense of humor, they're not all twirling mustaches. If you can find their, and maybe they're conflicted, uh, but ultimately they choose poorly. And so how does that apply to tabletop? It's the same thing. I think they just, you know, tabletop villains take, they, they may not come across at first as a villain when you first meet them. And that's often what I do get to play. At first blush, you go, nah, he's, he's hard, but he's not a bad guy. Oh, 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 wait a second. Except for Dr. Draken. Like, that, like from word go, he's just a mustache-twirling, scenery-chewing villain. But most of the time... And how I apply that to 
in D&D is a, I like it when you don't see the villain coming. I like that. And then also weaving in humor. And not, not like wacky, but uh, when you're improvising a scene, finding like finding how this person thinks something's funny. Not Todd's making a joke, necessarily. Because that'll happen too, but how does this person find this scenario humorous? And what kind of in-world joke would they make or levity that they would add to the scenario? All right, you referenced your dice tower a little bit earlier from Nerd Circus. My shameless, my shameless Saturday promo. Yes, indeed. So what is Nerd Circus? How did it start? And what are you most proud of so far that you uh, have created? So it, it originally started years ago. I had seen, you know, I was looking at these people that uh, I admire, uh, Joe Manganiello, and seeing like how he was able to share with the world the lens to which he views D&D, which is that great Conan O'Brien, the Death Knight, that Orcus and uh, like there's this great gothic, you know, steel and, and blood approach with death saves, heavy metal. And I was like, well, that's cool. And I love it. And I own plenty of death save stuff. I would love to throw my hat in the ring and share what D&D feels like for me. And being kid from the late 70s, early 80s, we played D&D in wood paneled basements with orange shag carpeting and there was lava lamps and there were Burger King glasses uh, that we drank our drinks out of. And that was primarily the vibe to which I was approaching D&D. And I'm like, we, you know, we kept our dice in Crown Royal bags. We kept our dice in, in our pencils and minis and cigar boxes. And so I wanted to create a site that celebrated that, that sort of late 70s, early 80s vibe of D&D for me. Not saying that it's a better way to play. It's just that feels like home. When I'm playing D&D, it's Zeppelin and sticks. It's, it's, it's not heavy metal. It's, it's sort of prog rock and Kansas and all of that, that kind of freewheeling Americana rock. And so that was the impulse to to create the site is sort of share my love of the game in a way that looks through that lens. So that's why that's why like my Mai Tai glasses look like old Burger King glasses, and the dice are like lava lamp dice. Yeah, those are really cool. <laughs> Thanks. And so we, you know, I wanted the dice tower to look like a basement. So it's 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 wood panel carpeting and orange shag rug. <laughs> That's so um, funny. I just bought a house uh, that, that we're in now. That's why I have all these boxes, and it's a seventies place. And uh, yep. I found the wood paneling behind the walls that they've covered up. So I, I might uh, I yeah. might take down the built-ins and let it air out a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> let it ride. And, and so I'm proud of everything on the site. And then there's T-shirts that are uh, inspired by nerdy properties that I've been on supernatural and 12 monkeys and then paraphernalia like dice and dice towers and inspiration tokens and all of that fun stuff. Cause I'm a collector. Like I love, I only want to put out there things that I would buy myself. The thing that I think I'm most proud of is the collaboration, which is mystic libations that makes me the most proud because it, it exceeded expectations. It came out organically with my friendship with Brandon and his love of Tiki and my love of Tiki and then me being able to introduce D&D to him and him finding love for D&D, it just came out so good. And then having people on Kickstarter respond the way they did. And I brought to the table all the D&D stuff. And then I enlisted like David Nett to do magic items and, and PCs. And then I you know wrote the adventure and the short stories. And then Brandon 
created his character and then we fleshed it out and there's a narrative in it and there's a playable adventure as long as well as like over a hundred actual recipes. So missing libations is, is, is the, the kind of the marquee thing. I do love this dice tower though. This, the, the, the nerd circus, the, it comes with a lid. I love it. I love it. So I'm always trying to think of like new stuff to add to the stable of fun things that I, that I sell on the site. Yeah. What are some of your favorite drinks from Mystic Libations, if you had to pick a few? Well, the Scav King, based on my character, it's essentially a Mai Tai, which I love Mai Tais, but it's made with bourbon, which I love bourbon. So uh, it's sort of a bourbon Mai Tai called the Scav King. I also like the Dijini Punch. That's really tasty. The simple, simple one, which is the Bloodthorn Brew, which is um, dragon's milk, bourbon barrel stout, mixed with chocolate port. And it is, it's like if I was a vampire, I imagine that's what blood would taste like because it's just like num, 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 So, yeah, I mean, there's so many good cocktails in here because our mixologist is the, uh, is a bartender at Trader Sam's at Disneyland. Oh, yeah. A, a man by the name of Roy Hansel. There you go. Uh, so, so they're legit, legit drinks. All right. Uh, so all of that stuff can be found at thenerdcircus.com. I'll make sure to include a link in, in the uh, episode description so you guys can go check it out. Thanks. But yeah, that's, uh, that sounds like it was a lot of fun to make. Uh, what are your parting words of wisdom and encouragement to new DMs and to maybe people who are getting back into the hobby like you did? New DMs, I would highly recommend. If you're running one shots or a campaign, do a pre-written one. Do Fandelver. Do Sly Flourish. Do pre-written campaigns first. Do not try to write. That's just my opinion. Other people will tell you, well, dive in head first. I'm saying the training wheels that it gives you to slowly internalize the shape of an adventure, the shape of an encounter. There's so much else to be in charge of running combat initiative all of that stuff is hard enough than having to just go i'm gonna write one soup to nuts which is like that's far more ambitious than me and you know if you choose to bless you i would encourage people to do pre-written adventures first that's a big big thing beyond that be a dm <laughs> because some people think i want to play dnd i want to play dnd i can't get a group together and i heard brennan say this he goes 100 percent of the people that say I can't find a group. It's because they're not choosing to be a DM. And so if you're a DM, you are the inviter. You are the one who creates the table. And watch how quickly you are able to put a table together and start playing D&D. And you'll get to play characters. You'll play NPCs that can join the party and go into combat and do all the things and be part of it for a little bit. If you want to play D&D, Start the group. Don't wait for someone to ask you to be a part of it. And just run one. Run a one-shot and see if you like it or not. No one's telling you you have to start a five-year campaign. Taste it. Try it. Those are my two big headlines. I feel like the moment people find out I run games, like if they are into it, they're like, oh, well, we should play. Like Everybody who who wants to play, when they find out you run games, will want to play with you. I have no shortage of players, yeah. They're like uh, DMs are like the '80s uh, high school drug dealer, <laughs> where it's like no one really wants to be one, but they won't get the party started until you show up. And you, as a DM, you know, even if you're not prepping a lot, you know how much prep it takes. 
to throw to 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 get ready, get the party, get people ready. But it's so much easier for people to just go. I want to play D and D. You do it. Like you go. You know how much the time that is. And one shots, I like to write them. So that's that's a whole other mountain to climb. But I love doing it, so I don't mind. And it's a fun preoccupation thought, and you're having a good time. And that's my place where I'm able to bring new people to the table because it's over and done with in one evening and get a different group together every week. It's like I used to do an improv show called Mayfly where I would gra- gather improvisers once a week to do a show, and they would never see each other again on the stage in the same group. And I'm like, that's kind of how this is scratching that same itch, that improv itch that I don't get to do in theaters now. I get to do uh, around a table, and I don't have to charge tickets. For, I mean, I don't have to try and fill a house. I just have to get six people who want to show up. What projects are you working on? Any upcoming streams or, or appearances or anything? Anything you want to plug here? Upcoming, I have a video game that I co-wrote uh, that I'm very proud of called Forspoken. That will be on the PS5 uh, late May. I'm writing uh, with a group of people on a Marvel game for Skydance New Media. I can't say what game that is because there are trained snipers on me at all times. Uh, and then I'm working on a TV thing that I can't talk about at all that I am so excited about that I will hopefully be able to talk about sometime this year. Beyond that, I'm going to be at GaryCon. I'm going to be running three, ta- three tables at GaryCon. Streams, if they, if they sound the horn of Gondor, if they light the beacon, I show up. I don't ever plan them. But like if I'm asked to DM a, a Jasper's game, I'm always there to do it. If I'm asked to jump in on someone else's stream, I do it. I just don't motivate them myself. There's only so much bandwidth. Those are the things to promote. And then always uh, always Nerd Circus. I, people go, just check it out. And if you want to know a little bit more about how I see the game and the, the sort of the spirit of the game for me, that's a good place to look. Well, thanks so much for your time, Todd. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've enjoyed the stuff I've watched with you in it. I uh, I had a DVR in college when 12 Monkeys started. And so it was like my come home from class, decompress, watch a few episodes kind of thing. Yeah, it was great. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, it was, it, you know, I was so proud of that show. It was such a, a treat to do and the relationships made on that show endure today. And they are some of my favorite, most wonderful people. And it was a great, it's a show I would watch if I wasn't on it. I have the word of the witness right over there in the corner and it's being held by the medieval witness costume, which is on a mannequin in my, yeah, the, the mask and the hood and, and it's the medieval witness. And Terry gave me that. And so they're clutching the word of the witness, which is still rolled up. I got to find a place to hang it because it's huge and I'm not on it anyway. So who cares? Yeah, who cares? <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a ton, Todd. Great meeting you. Take care. Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Robert Hartley GM, who runs New Zealand's own Viva La Dirt League NPC D&D game. The, th- the biggest thing that I've learned over the years of working with them is just don't fight the chaos, just guide it. Don't try and force against the stream that's coming, that's raging against you. The, the stream is not going to stop. You're not going to put your fists up and just <laughs> stop, stop the water. Your, your only hope is to just direct the river into the direction you want it to go. 
To hear more about how Robert got the gig as the DM of one of the world's most chaotic tables, make sure to tune in next week. Remember to check out my Patreon if you haven't already for even more sneak peeks. Next time you get the chance, share this episode with your friends and family around your gaming table. Another great way to help boost the show is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or rating the show on Spotify. I appreciate all of you for helping me grow. My new intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Exacat, and the Quickfire Chaos mood music is by Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for links to their great work. And, as always, until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.